So this evening I would like to reflect upon this theme of refuge. And it's a very traditional theme in many ways. But I'd also really like to reflect on what this theme of refuge can mean to us in our own path and practice. I'd like to begin with a poem by Mary Oliver that some of you will be familiar with. It's called The Buddha's Last Instruction. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. I think of this every morning as the east begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness to send up the first signal, a white fan, streaked with pink and violet, even green. An old man, he lay down between two solid trees, and he might have said anything, knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upward, it thickens and settles over the fields. Around him the villagers gathered and stretched forward to listen. Even before the sun itself hangs, disattached in the blue air, I am touched everywhere by its ocean of yellow waves. No doubt he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life. And then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills, like a million flowers on fire. Clearly, I'm not needed. Yet I find myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Slowly, beneath the trees, he raised his head. He looked into the eyes of the frightened crowd. Make of yourself a light. As I mentioned, this is in in many ways a very kind of traditional theme because taking and finding refuge is really in this teaching, this path, said to be very central in the whole evolution of awakening. To understand what it means to be a light unto ourselves. To find within ourselves an unshakable grace and confidence and trust that we can rest in. It is true that around the world on a daily basis, tens of thousands of people in monasteries, in al- alone, together with one another, on their meditation cushions, chant what are called the three great refuges. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dhamma. And I take refuge in the Sangha. And this chanting of the refuges is not meant to be some kind of empty ritual or performance. Instead, it is really intended to be a manifestation of a quality of sincerity and confidence and commitment, but also a very deep sense of aspiration. These refuges are also the first of the three great bodhisattva 
precepts on the path of compassion. Now, if one goes into like many Asian countries, you know, the, the taking of refuge is it's just something very ordinary. It, it's something very, very natural, something very simple. And yet, when this sense of refuge is really alive and in the forefront of our awareness, I think it's a very powerful reminder of what we are doing here. It's a very powerful reminder of the heart of the path. In Pali, this taking of refuge is buddham sanam gachami, dhammam saranam gachami, and sangam saranam gachami. Now, saranam in Pali refers to sanctuary, a sense of protection, a place of shelter, of peace, of safety. The gachami comes from that Pali verb gamana, which is translated as the act of returning or coming back to this place of sanctuary, this place of protection and peace. Taking refuge in the Buddha is an interesting one, this. Because it is really about placing our heart, placing our trust in awakening, in freedom. It's about placing our trust in our own capacity to awaken. It's not just about admiring some historical figure or following in the footsteps of some historical figure. But it is really taking refuge in our capacity to see and to know for ourselves what the Buddha saw, what the Buddha knew and understood. To know for ourselves what an unshakable freedom of heart really is. This is not something that is a territory of only Buddhist traditions. It was not just Siddhartha but really all great mystics in all practices and all times and traditions who come to realize that quality of unshakability inwardly. Taking refuge in the Buddha is an act of returning, of trusting, not just once, but a thousand times in a single day sometimes in a single hour, to take refuge in what is true and what is free, rather than being lost in confused or deluded ideas about ourselves and about the world. One of the early Chan nuns wrote, a simple meditation cushion and one is completely protected. Earth may crumble, heaven collapse, but here one is at peace. Sacred titles and worldly fame both fade away in the sitting, and the whole universe assembles on the tip of a feather. To take refuge in the Dhamma, <clears throat> 
is to place our heart and to place our trust in the teaching and the path of awakening. But this is something that is very alive. It is something that is so immediate. Because each time that we cultivate our capacity to be here, to be present, rather than being lost, we are taking refuge in the Dhamma. Each time we remember to return from fantasy or struggle or, or conflict, we are taking refuge in the Dhamma. Each time that we can remember that we can embody kindness and compassion rather than ill will and resistance, we are taking refuge in the Dhamma. Each time in a day, in an hour, that we can value and find ourselves valuing mindfulness and awakening and know that we can return to wakefulness from the world of habit and preoccupation and agitation. Every moment we do that, we are taking refuge in the Dhamma. Each time that we find the courage to meet our lives, to meet this moment as it is, rather than to flee, we are returning and taking refuge in the path. Every time we remember to see what is, to see things as they actually are, rather than searching for what might be or what should be, we are taking refuge in the Dharma. This is a process. It is something we breathe life into, through our intentionality and through our remembering. Every time we, we really re- rediscover this kind of intelligent awareness that can embrace the simple truths of every moment, the lovely and the unlovely, rather than being lost in this, this self idea that leans upon attachments and shoulds, we're really taking refuge in the path of freeing our hearts. We're taking refuge in the path of liberation. To take refuge in the Sangha, I mean, traditionally, this is taking refuge in the community of awakened beings. And this is one level But on another level, taking refuge in the Sangha is taking refuge in our own sense of an understanding of connectedness. Because we know, know, in many ways, the world of relationship, the world of human beings, (laughs) the world of people, (laughs) this is the most challenging part of our path because this is so easily the place where we We are caught in the fires of likes and dislikes, fears, preferences, judgments. But taking refuge in the Sangha is somehow a little bit stepping underneath that to know so deeply that you depend upon everyone and everyone in truth depends upon you that our lives are 
entwined and interwoven on every level, in suffering and in joy, in hatred and in love. Sangha, from the Pali, actually translates as harmony. Harmony. A sense of connectedness and community that is rooted in kindness and ethics. As I mentioned last night, you know, we are alone in so many profound ways, but we're always going to be alone with others. We're always going to be alone with others. And our very interdependence really asks us to take refuge in, in respect, in integrity, in concern, in care. There's, there's a wonderful line from, the Maha, from, I think it's from Shantideva. He says, wherever my eyes may fall, may my gaze be honest and filled with compassion. So, refuge, as we explore it, is really a place of peace and safety. And the commitment to it, and its most essential level, is to relinquish our tendency to flee. Because refuge, I think, really is a commitment to being fearless and upright in our lives with a willingness to unconditionally embrace everything, the wild and the chaotic thoughts, the sunbeams on the grass, lovely people and difficult people, lovely and difficult emotions. Refuge relies upon our willingness to embrace it all. In the most critical and challenging times of our lives, loss, illness, death, nothing can serve us so well as to understand what it means to be a refuge unto ourselves, to know in our own hearts a place of peace and safety. When our worlds crumble, and notice I don't say if our worlds crumble. When our worlds crumble, when there feels to be maybe nothing that we can really lean on or rely on, this inner refuge of confidence and poise and balance is the greatest of all blessings. Dogen was one of the most influential and brilliant teachers and scholars in Buddhist history. And by all accounts, he was also an extraordinarily accomplished practitioner. And when he was dying, what did he do? Where did he go in practice? By all accounts, he didn't choose to go into blissful states of concentration or transcendence or out-of-body experiences. What he did was transcribe onto a long piece of paper 
the words Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. And he hung them on a pillar in his sick room. And it's said that whenever he could find the strength, he would get out of bed and he would walk around the pillar chanting, I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. I think our capacity to find in our own hearts this, this fearless freedom, this place of ultimate safety and refuge, is not only for our own benefit, but this is also what enables us to be and offer a refuge to others. And just think about this in human history through time, how these places of refuge have really meant the difference between life and death for many. Think about the Quakers in this country offering refuge to those who were fleeing slavery and imprisonment, seeking safety. Think of the number of good people in the Holocaust who offered refuge to those who were most in danger. Think of the unbroken string of refuges that offer safety and shelter to women and children fleeing abuse. In our own lives, our capacity to embrace the difficult and the challenging with fearless compassion in many ways relies upon our own inner balance and trust. And the world actually needs this courage. The world actually needs this, this fearlessness and this sense of protection. In this teaching and path, refuge, this capacity to find and offer refuge, is profoundly linked to the path of compassion and fearlessness, the embodiment of a life of dignity and truthfulness. Shantideva was one of the great poets of compassion. And he wrote these lines, which I think are so beautiful. He said, May I be a friend to those who have no friends, a protector to those who have no protection, a guide to those who are lost, an island to those who are adrift. But we see, I think, this connection that our ability to offer refuge to another, to embrace suffering and pain that we see in another with courage is so clearly and directly linked to our capacity to know in ourselves the steadfastness and confidence which is a true refuge for ourselves. My sense is that our initial, the initial motivation, the initial motivation for many people 
To begin to explore a meditative or a spiritual path is this very curious, but I think this very important blend of disappointment and insight. It is a very curious but important marriage, wise disappointment and insight. I think it is so clear, I don't know how it is in your life, but I certainly know in my life in the past that when there is not a sense of confidence inwardly, and not a sense of our own hearts and minds being a refuge, a place of safety and peace for us, what do we do? We seek refuge elsewhere. And usually we seek refuge outside of ourselves. Now, sometimes this is skillful and wholesome, and I will touch on that in a bit. But often when we feel most shaky within ourselves, we seek to find someone or something that we can lean on, but often that we hope that can deliver the peace and the safety we feel lacking in ourselves. And this is often a frustrating endeavor. That at times in our lives we might try to find refuge in status or in possessions or in identity. Or we might search the corners of the world seeking the one perfect person who's going to be an island for us or a rock that we can stand on. When we can't bear the essential uncertainty of life, then we often do try to find refuge in control and habit. Sometimes we just seek refuge in food or fantasy or drugs or forgetfulness. A recent research study I read (laughs) put forward the uh, assertion that the average person spends 49% of their time somewhere other than where they are. I thought this was incredibly positive news, personally. I, I thought, only 49%? I mean, look at today. Look at today. But it is a really, for me, a really interesting question to bring into our practice Where do we go when we are not here? Where do we go when we are not here? And what, perhaps, are we looking for in fantasy or in busyness or in the strategies we often use to arrange our world in such a way to protect ourselves from the unpleasant. What is going on in our minds when we convince ourselves that we are definitely going to be much happier on the top of the hill than here on our cushion? What is going on in our minds when we try to convince ourselves that you know there is much more, more peace, uh, I don't know, in bed <laughs> than being awake? Where are we going when we leave ourselves expecting or needing the world to be a certain way. Now, sometimes the motivation for leaving is wholesome 
and enduring. There's a part of it that's really wholesome and enduring and timeless because aren't we often so much looking for a place where we can rest? A place where we can be at ease, a place of, of safety. The difficulty is that when that very timeless and wholesome motivation gets mixed up with delusion, and then we project refuge outside of ourselves. Now, there is no blame or no judgment in this, in this because I think throughout our lives and our culture, we get very much exposed to this kind of collective and cultural delusion that encourages and promotes leaning and flight from what is. And I think it is a cultural delusion. You know, if we, I don't know, what were the fairy tales you grew up on? I know what mine were. You know, somewhere else, in someone else, there is this sense of refuge and safety. And what, what is that, what is being promoted in that encouragement to flee and to find refuge elsewhere? There is a kind of ideology promoted which is about a sense of lack, a sense of inner insufficiency, not complete in oneself, not whole in oneself. Lean somewhere, find something, find someone who is going to offer us or you what we cannot offer ourselves, but there's a price to pay. There's a price to pay because we have to sometimes learn how to please, learn how to conform, learn how to strive, learn how to force. The Buddha raised his head and he looked into the eyes of the frightened crowd. Why was the crowd frightened? The Buddha taught his whole life about inner liberation. We could say that the very teaching of the Buddha ultimately was a shattering of delusion. The delusion that we can find outside of ourselves, what we cannot find inwardly. Perhaps a crowd was frightened because in the Buddha dying, losing that which they had so much lent upon. But what was the Buddha's last teaching? Be a light. Be an island unto yourself. Take refuge in your own capacity to find an unshakable heart. The Buddha himself was no stranger to disappointment. The Buddha had experienced in his life many of the same disappointments that we experience in our own lives. You know, we've probably kind of got it by now. You know that the world of conditions simply can't be grasped. It can't be mastered. It can't be controlled. That this world of conditions which is intrinsically unstable and changing and unpredictable is intrinsically incapable of satisfying our hopes for certainty and for safety and for refuge. We probably have got that by now. This is not wrong or not or bad. 
It's just simply the way things are. And it's not a judgment upon us of failure if we haven't controlled the world. It's not a judgment upon us that we haven't tried hard enough. You know, or that we haven't just been successful in our strategies. It's just the way things are. We live on shifting sands. We know this, and part of us really doesn't want to know it. Because if this is true, it actually can feel quite frightening. If this is true, where can we turn to? What can we lean on? Where can we turn to for refuge? But this is not a prescription for disconnection from life. It can, I think, be frightening to fully embrace the truth that anyone or anything that we have lent on in the past or that we lean on in the present or want to lean on in the future is bound just like we are bound within an intrinsic instability. It's not then a statement to flee from connection. But we need to know that if we lean upon that which crumbles, we, we open our own hearts to crumbling too. Now, we will at all time, at times in our lives, I think all of us, I think there are times in our lives when our hearts are broken, when we're lost, when we, when we feel really adrift, that we will be so deeply supported by the refuge offered to us by another. It's so true of all of us that as much as we learn in this path about how to offer compassion, that we all need to know how to receive compassion and how to receive the protection and the support of others and take shelter in the refuge of others. But at the same time, we need to keep alive this light of understanding that as much as we can be supported, loved, and cared for, there isn't actually anyone or anything that is in the end going to heal the pain that we carry but ourselves. That there isn't anyone who can find freedom of heart for us. Disappointment, I, I feel can be such a powerful teacher for us that we, we may or may not have people who love us or hate us. We, we may or may not have experiences of praise or blame. We may or may not have wonderful concentration or amazing meditation experiences. But you know what? All of this is part of the intrinsic world of conditions And none of it actually holds the power to shatter our hearts or to deliver enduring peace and happiness. For some, this can be really like a crushing disappointment. You know, we may have spent so much time searching the world for for stability and, and something that can be delivered that when we wake up to the reality, hey, guess what? You know? It can be wonderful and lovely, but somehow this path needs to be walked on for ourselves. For some, it can be a crushing disappointment and a forerunner to 
to sinking into despair or a sense of, hope, of hopelessness. But when disappointment is married to insight, when disappointment is married to insight, disappointment, I think, is one of the most profound and initial steps on the journey of awakening. It also kind of liberates the world, doesn't it? I mean, when I kind of stop demanding that the world and other people are somehow meant to provide me with some enduring happiness or freedom, I can kind of liberate the world and everyone in it to be who they are, rather than what I think they must be for me or deliver for me. Disappointment is interesting. Wise disappointment is, is really seen... Yes, we live, we, we sit, we walk, we, we stand upon these shifting sands. And we start to know that trying to grasp the ungraspable is a prescription for unhappiness. Then I think that's the moment that we actually turn inwardly. That we really embrace this, this journey inwardly of discovering for ourselves what a free heart is. I think that moment of wise disappointment is actually for many of us the moment we stop fleeing and stop busying ourselves with trying to rearrange the world of conditions and start to be present in our lives and begin to cultivate the peace and the contentment of our own hearts. You know, in our lives, I think we all have tasted happiness and joy and equanimity and compassion, no matter how brief those tastes are. And what is this path about? It's to remind us again and again that the loveliness, the true loveliness of happiness and joy and peace are inwardly born. They are inwardly generated. That is why so much emphasis is given in this tradition to really diving into our hearts, to deepening in our practice, because when we do that, we do taste the joy and the happiness and the peace that is born from within. And that's when we begin actually to trust that capacity for profound joy and profound happiness and profound peace. It is why, you know, we, we keep encouraging, you know, be present, be here, listen inwardly, be wholeheartedly present. You know, being present is not a mantra or a command or a cliche, but it's really sensing that that capacity to be here is where we start to embrace our life where we can welcome the birds and the pain in the knee, where we can welcome the thoughts of I'm worthy or I'm unworthy, where we can even welcome the desire to flee and the intention to be present. Being wholeheartedly present, I think, really being, means being mindful of what we are taking refuge in, moment to moment, where we are making our home. 
You have probably noticed today that actually, you know, we keep saying practice, practice, practice. But you probably noticed today we're always practicing something, aren't we? We're always practicing something. So, <laughs> what are we practicing in the moment? It's a really good question to take into our pra- into our day. What are we practicing? Are we practicing the habits of a lifetime that generally go in circles? Or are we practicing the cultivation of the qualities of heart that allow us to walk new pathways? Are we practicing in a way of taking refuge in, in, in ourselves that offers freedom? Or do we find ourselves kind of taking false refuges? One of those, I think, false refuges is beliefs. All the ideas of who we think ourselves to be. All the beliefs about who we are. You know, I'm lovely or I'm not. You know, I'm lovable or I'm not. I'm, you know, you've probably heard these little phrases come up. I'm an agitated person. You know, I'm so restless. You know, I'm, I'm inadequate. I'm anxious. How do we know we're taking refuge in, uh, taking false refuge? Because these beliefs begin to grow and they begin to become more strong and they feel anything but free. They feel anything but free. Sometimes we find ourselves taking refuge or making our home in emotions and mental states. Restlessness might begin, and then we start to embody restlessness. Aversion might begin, and then we start to embody aversion. I think we do really start to see more and more clearly in this practice that what we feed will grow. And what we also begin to see is that our thoughts and our ideas about ourselves and our, even our emotions and our reactions, they are only slivers of a whole. They are never the whole. They are just slivers. Yet, when we take a false refuge in them, actually we become who we believe ourselves to be in that moment. But it is never the whole. When we take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, as I've spoken about it tonight, sometimes, you know, we're taking refuge from the habits of our own hearts. Sometimes we are protecting ourselves, our hearts, from habits of thinking and believing that simply do not serve us well. We're taking refuge. When we take refuge in Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, It means taking refuge in capacity rather than incapacity. It means taking refuge in possibility rather than impossibility. The seeds of awakening, the seeds of profound peace actually lie in our own hearts both as an aspiration and as a fruition. One of the early Chan nuns wrote, 
A nun who has self-possession and integrity will find the peace that nourishes and leaves no lack. A nun who has self-possession and integrity will find the peace that nourishes and leaves no lack. There is another poem from the same tradition. This is the blue lotus spontaneously emerges from the drift of the mire. If you bring to everything an illumined mind, you will not get lost. I send word to those who study to always keep firmly in mind. That which is originally pure is none other than wisdom itself. Taking refuge in capacity, possibility, taking refuge in the Buddha, taking refuge in awakening. To talk about this for a minute, let us think about awakening not only with a capital A, but as a process and with a small a. The Buddha's understanding of freedom was the discovery of, of, an, of a way of being that was already present, hidden beneath layers of confusion and the delusion. The Buddha actually didn't enter you know, some transcendent domain or some esoteric definition, destination. What the Buddha saw so clearly and deeply and profoundly was that thing, the way things actually are. What was released what was let go of, were the layers of camouflage, including the false view of self. The Buddha didn't deny his world, but transformed the way the world was seen. He changed his heart. He changed his mind. He changed his view. This is always the invitation of this path, not to rearrange the furniture in the room, but to change our hearts to change our mind, to change the eyes through which we see. When the Buddha was asked by an admiring follower, you know, what are you, who are you? He had just answered, I'm awake. I'm awake. This was his refuge, something and a quality of aliveness, of receptivity, of responsiveness, yet also a freedom from clinging and suffering. And, you know, these two are interwoven. Somehow, clinging deadens our world. Aliveness is born and really linked to our capacity to not cling. We practice being awake. We practice non-clinging. We discover a refuge not in passing objects, but in the seeing and in the knowing, the space, the unshakability of mindfulness, of collectedness, of understanding. Taking refuge in the path, we forget. Of course we forget. And we return home again. You know what? Forgetfulness is where we practice. Forgetfulness is where we practice. But in that, we also develop the understanding of knowing that 
agitation and habit and heedlessness really offer no true refuge for us. We take refuge in the Sangha, in community and harmony, I think because we know we can't afford to do otherwise. And here we learn the lessons, the ennobling lessons of patience with ourselves and others, of kindness and compassion for ourselves and others. And if you really think about it on a retreat, how many times are we asked to practice this? How many times are we asked to remember kindness? How many times are we asked to remember compassion? A friend of mine, a colleague of mine, he once wrote, we do not achieve awakening for ourselves, but we participate in the awakening of the world. Seeking all that is possible for us, we find the courage to be a refuge for others. Understanding the way things are, we can be a refuge for ourselves. The Buddha once wrote, he said, uh, taught, he said, this noble life we live does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit, or the attainment of virtue or concentration as its benefit or its goal. It is the unshakable liberation of the heart that is the goal of this noble life, its heartward and its end. So if we take just a moment quietly together and then we'll have some time for a walking period. May all beings discover a sense of refuge within themselves. May all beings offer the refuge of compassion to others. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.